Well, good morning. It's, uh, if you were here last week, you know that we kind of got canceled at literally sort of the last minute because the overflow crowds in the first service were so large they needed this room. And I was glad for that. I'd rather hear John MacArthur than me any day. Uh, but I did have this message prepared for Easter Sunday that it was going to be a great message. <laughs> and, and then I looked at the calendar and realized... Today is when the Russian Orthodox celebrate Easter. So just I thought they should have Russian tea cakes this morning, but I forgot to arrange that. But anyway, I'm still in Easter mode, and so I want to go to 1 Corinthians 15, that famous chapter on resurrection. This is the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, and it's appropriate, I think, to have a more intense focus on the resurrection of Christ and the distinctively Christian doctrines that emerge from that event, specifically the resurrection of the physical body in and around Easter. So I'm happy to continue this for this week. I've usually stayed away from this chapter during Easter season because I try to choose sort of -of out-of-the-way texts to make sure that I'm not going to cover the same exact ground that John MacArthur will cover in the second-hour main service. And this entire chapter is a long discourse on the resurrection of the body. It starts with Christ's resurrection from the dead, and then it traces the principle of bodily resurrection all the way into the eschatological future, looking forward to that day when Paul says, verse 51, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible, and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So this this is all about resurrection. It's a glorious chapter, and I want to give you just a short overview of the logical flow of the whole chapter. Paul starts here by declaring and defending the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. And then he enumerates the hundreds of eyewitnesses who could testify that they had seen the resurrected Christ. And in verse 8, he says he is one of those eyewitnesses. And he explains how that could possibly be. And then he expresses his own sense of wonder at the greatness of the privilege God has granted him despite the fact that originally he persecuted the church verses 9 through 11, and then verses 12 through 34, he explains the importance of the doctrine of bodily resurrection and why this issue is so essential to the Christian faith that he's saying, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection, if you don't believe Christ rose bodily and that you and I as believers will also rise bodily, if you don't believe that, he says you're not a true follower of Christ at all, and verses 35 through 49 he describes how your resurrected body, even though, even though it will be the same physical body you now inhabit, it will nevertheless be better, and I'm looking forward to that. It'll be glorified. It will be transformed and perfected and, in Paul's words, made incorruptible. And then finally, verses 50 through 57, he describes how this principle, the resurrection, is the guarantee of eternal triumph for every believer when death is swallowed up in victory, verse 54. And and then in the last verse, verse 58, 
he applies all of this in practical terms. In fact, there's a sermon somewhere on the Grace Life pulpit archives that I dealt with that, verse 58. You might want to listen to it this week, but this week I want to focus on those first five verses. So here's some historical context, broader than chapter 15. Paul is writing, as you know, to straighten out some terrible confusion that was festering in this troubled Corinthian church regarding heaven and the afterlife. And as my short summary of the chapter there shows, he's not merely, he's not even primarily concerned with defending the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. That's a given, and he says there's 500 witnesses that'll affirm that. So he does that. He does defend the historicity of Christ's resurrection. But then the heart of this chapter, and throughout most of this long chapter, he is concerned what the principle of resurrection means for our future. And his eye is on the culmination of all history when believers and unbelievers alike will be raised from the dead bodily, physically, in tangible flesh and blood form, raised from the dead. And I'll say this again so that you don't miss the point. He's teaching, first of all, that the bodily resurrection of Christ is so essential to the truth of Christianity that if you don't really believe it happened, then you're not even a true Christian. But he's also saying that the hope of our bodily resurrection is likewise one of the cardinal principles of the Christian faith. And at the start of this chapter, he's making that first point that the historicity of Christ's resurrection is vital to our faith. He's showing that Christ's resurrection, the literal resurrection of Christ's body from the tomb, That's one of the essential, non-negotiable principles of gospel truth. You don't believe it, you don't believe the gospel. And in making that point, he gives here what I think is the most succinct, straightforward, clear summaries of gospel essentials that you will find anywhere in Scripture. This is a concise summary of the cardinal points of gospel doctrine in the words of the Apostle Paul. His stated intention here is to declare the principles of gospel truth that are, of, in his words, these are the truths that are of first importance. In other words, this is a summary of the foundational articles of faith that you and I must believe in order to be authentic Christians, true believers, saved people. So let me read the text. I'll read the first five verses, because that's what we're focusing on. 1 Corinthians 15, now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel, which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then after verse 5, he goes on to give this exhaustive list of the people who he knew about who were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. And at one point he says, Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And furthermore, he says, most of these people who saw the risen Christ are still living. When he wrote this, that was true. And he said, all of them would confirm the truth of what happened. So you had, 
you know, Scripture says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. Here you have hundreds of eyewitnesses who would testify to the resurrection, and they did that even though making that confession cost them their lives. And so if we isolate these five verses, I think you can see that the the question Paul undertakes to answer at the very start of this chapter is this. If you could reduce the message of the gospel to its bare essence, what is it? If we were to summarize the gospel in the briefest, simplest possible outline, what are the main points? And he raises that issue, of course, to to make the point that he wants to get to, namely that the resurrection is one of those essential points. That's where he's headed. But he starts with this larger question. If we were to list the points of doctrine that are matters of first importance, the primary, essential, non-negotiable doctrines of Christianity, the fundamental points of every true Christian's confession of faith, what would that short list look like? What is the very essence of the gospel? And that's the question he's answering in these opening five verses. Verse 1, now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you. Now, here's some more context. Paul has just concluded several chapters of admonition about a long list of problems in the Corinthian church, starting with their divisiveness, chapters 1 through 3, you know, where they were saying, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. They were dividing into little factions. He addresses that. And then it, all of this culminates in the later chapters in the charismatic-style craziness of that church, where people who claimed to have spectacular gifts were turning their corporate gatherings into chaotic contests to see who could manifest the most spectacular supernatural gifts, who could speak in tongues the loudest or whatever. And Paul deals with that problem in chapters 12 through 14, And the verse just before our chapter, the last verse in chapter 14, literally sums up Paul's answer to all of the problems in the Corinthian church. This is his answer to all of them, chapter 14, verse 40, all things must be done properly and in orderly manner. That's what he wanted that church to be. And that actually is the end of Paul's practical admonitions in 1 Corinthians, And then here at the start of chapter 15, he tackles one huge doctrinal matter that he has to deal with. Now, by the way, if if you've listened to me very long, you'll, you'll recognize right away, this is backward from Paul's normal pattern. Normally, what he does when he writes an epistle is he'll lay a thorough doctrinal foundation, and then that becomes the basis for his practical admonitions. He does that, for example, in Romans, where over half of that epistle, the first 11 chapters, are devoted to purely doctrinal instruction. And then he turns to the matter of practical application starting in chapter 12 of Romans. He does something similar in Galatians where he deals with doctrinal issues in chapters 1 through 4, and then he reserves the practical instruction for the last two chapters of the book of Galatians. You see the same pattern in Ephesians, three chapters of doctrine, and then that's followed by three chapters of practical wisdom. So that's Paul's normal pattern. Doctrine first, then the practical application. But 1 Corinthians is different, and I think it's mainly because the behavioral problems in that church were so profound and so numerous 
that Paul pretty much jumps right into dealing with their practical issues right from the start. Barely 10 verses into chapter 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. And so he he starts admonishing them about their quarrels, and, and he goes through a whole long list of other problems, practical problems in that church. And this actually sounds like an utterly chaotic church. It's, these are the original crazy charismatics. Now, I should say, Paul doesn't simply jump into practical matters devoid of any kind of doctrinal foundation. From the start of the first chapter, he continually refers to the gospel as the bedrock doctrinal principle on which all of his practical advice is based. So he assumes that they know something about vital doctrine. They've heard the gospel from him. He pastored that church for 18 months. He says, for example, chapter 1, verse 5, you were enriched in him, in Christ, in all word and all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed among you. He himself had had done the preaching of the gospel and confirming the witness of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17, Christ sent me to proclaim the gospel. Verse 18, the word of the cross is the power of God. Verses 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then chapter 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Chapter 3, verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, and so on. He goes like that through the epistles. So he's counting on the, on the fact that they knew the gospel and that they, they therefore already should have a doctrinal foundation for all of the corrections that he wanted them to make in their practice. And so therefore, all through this epistle, He keeps referring the Corinthians back to the gospel because they'd heard it from him. And he says that's the foundational truth on which everything else they need to know hinges the gospel. In fact, the word gospel appears 12 times in those first nine chapters of this epistle. And the name of Christ appears more than 50 times. Plus, there are several scattered references to the cross. I preach Christ crucified. And so the theme that that permeates this epistle is the gospel from start to finish. And Paul's assumption that the Corinthians were thoroughly familiar with the gospel message, that's the reason he keeps the preliminary doctrinal section that he includes in most of his other epistles. He sort of skips over it. Doesn't skip over it, but he assumes it. And it's significant, I think, that at the beginning, he uses the expression, Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. To him, that's a synonym for the gospel, Christ crucified. When he speaks of the word of the cross, or as it's translated in the King James Version, the preaching of the cross, that expression in Paul's mind is a synonym for the gospel. It's shorthand, of course, so when when he speaks of Christ crucified, He isn't excluding, he is not excluding the truth of Christ's resurrection from the gospel, and he's going to make that undeniably clear in our text. And we're not supposed to think that when Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he's not literally saying that he eliminated everything but the crucifixion from his preaching. Again, he's using 
the cross as a, a synonym for the gospel, all of it, in Acts 20, verse 27, Paul says, of this church, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, the whole counsel of God. And as Christ himself taught in Matthew 28, verse 20, Paul taught people, including the Corinthians, to keep all that Jesus had commanded. So, of course, he taught them about the resurrection and a lot of other things. But what he's saying is the heart of everything he pointed to was the cross, the gospel. And so, all of those references to the cross and crucifixion are a kind of verbal shorthand that Paul has in mind all of Christ's atoning work, not just the crucifixion, but the resurrection as well. And in fact, the resurrection is the culminating event that makes sense of what happened on the cross. The, the, the resurrection of Christ is the, the essential climax and the glorious end of the crucifixion story. And Paul makes that fact inescapably clear in our text. So are we clear? When Paul says he preached nothing but Christ crucified, he's most certainly not suggesting that he omitted the truth of the resurrection. He preached the whole message of the cross, explaining the true meaning of the crucifixion and giving the end of the story, which is the resurrection. And just in case someone is unclear about that, he spends this entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, stressing the fact that bodily resurrection is essential gospel truth. You're not preaching the gospel if you leave this out. And, and he includes in that both the literal historical bodily resurrection of Christ and the final resurrection and glorified bodily existence of us, the saints, in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, he's also using shorthand here in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, when he introduces this section by saying, now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel, which I proclaimed as good news to you, he's saying to them, Here is the, here's the gospel one more time. It's important to, to understand he is not trying to reduce the gospel to three or four plot points that, in the, you know, in the form of bare narrative elements, what he gives here. What he's doing is summarizing the truth of the gospel and making the significant events of the story into four headings that make a neat outline for all of the essential truths of the gospel. That's what he's doing here. So let's look closely at the text. He is correcting one final error in this chapter, and this one is uniquely a doctrinal error. Remember, up to this point, he's mainly confronting bad behavior. Here he attacks a false doctrine. Now, apparently someone who had influence with the church in Corinth was denying the possibility of bodily resurrection, and it was undermining the faith of some of the saints. You may remember from Acts chapter 17 that this, the notion of bodily resurrection was a major stumbling block in Greek culture, and the philosophers of Athens were absolutely shocked and appalled that someone of Paul's obvious learning and, and intelligence, that he could actually believe in the literal resurrection of the human body after death. That's when he mentioned that truth, that's when the meeting broke up. Now, Corinth is just 50 miles as the crow flies from Mars Hill in Athens, and so the idea of resurrection was just as hard for the Corinthians to fathom as it was for the Athenians. And from what we learn here in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, it seems people had somehow come into the Corinthian church, and they were saying, verse 12, 
that there is no resurrection from the dead. Period. That's what they were saying. In all likelihood, they were, uh, they were saying, for example, that Christ rose spiritually but not bodily, and that believers would likewise exist in eternity in a similar state, in a spiritual sense, and thus we would spend eternity as disembodied spirits or something like that. And that idea, by the way, was much more compatible with the Greek notion of what the afterlife was like. You know, the Greeks generally did believe in life after death. It wasn't they didn't believe in life after death, they just didn't believe in bodily resurrection. Their idea of heaven was a purely non-physical existence, a spiritual existence in a place called Elysium, which was kind of an ethereal paradise, and they considered the notion of literal bodily resurrection just utterly foolish. It's unscientific, we would say today. Now, it's not clear why these doubts about the literal resurrection were spreading so rapidly in the Corinthian congregation. Maybe this was the work of false teachers who deliberately were undermining or attacking Paul's teaching, or perhaps in their midst, the Corinthian church had some fashionable thinkers, some philosophers who craved academic respectability among the secular Corinthian intellectuals, and so they were trying to tone down or contextualize the gospel message so that it wouldn't pose as much of a challenge to the Greek intelligentsia. Uh, so I, we don't know. We don't know. Somebody was attacking this doctrine. We don't know their motive. But whatever was causing these doubts to fester, it was a very dangerous trend. To deny the literal resurrection of the physical body is such a corruption of gospel truth that Paul devotes this whole chapter to correcting that error, and he does it with maximum force and clarity. So bear in mind, first of all, He's writing this to stress that bodily resurrection is essential. He's not trying to categorize other doctrines as non-essential, and therefore he gives us really the most compact outline of the gospel possible. He's basically saying, look, I want to review the basic facts of the gospel one more time with you. Verse 1, now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you. You've heard this before. You know it already. But let's go over it one more time. This is that which he says you once received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing, unless you believed in vain, is what lots of translations say. In other words, he's saying to them, you're saved by God's grace through faith in this truth, faith in this truth. And if you don't believe all of this truth, or if you're inclined to let go of it, then you're not really saved. That's what the phrase, you believe for nothing, implies. Such a temporary faith is a good-for-nothing faith. Faith that doesn't persevere isn't faith at all. First John 2.19, those who depart from the faith were not really of us, for if they were of us, they would have remained with us. So true faith is a persevering faith. It never... It never gives up. It never throws away the truths that it clung to. So now he's going to review the gospel with them, and this is how he sums it up. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, two crucial things to notice about that statement, and I'll point them out in reverse order. First of all, he stresses the fact that he received the gospel, and uh, as we learned several years ago in our study of Galatians, He is expressly claiming here 
that he heard the gospel not from another apostle, not from some preacher. He got it by direct revelation. That's his claim. He got it from the risen Christ in particular. He didn't learn the gospel in an apostolic seminar. It wasn't taught to him by any of the other apostles. He received it from Christ by revelation, and he delivered it to the Corinthians intact, which is this is an explicit claim that what he preached to them is divinely revealed truth. It's not just Paul's personal opinion. And second, notice that phrase of first importance, which is what you have if you're reading the Legacy Standard Bible or the New American Standard Bible or the English Standard Bible or even the New International Version. The King James Version and all of the New King James Version say, I delivered it to you first of all, as if he gave it to them at the start of his ministry. But he's not saying these are truths that he gave them first in chronological order. He's saying these are the core gospel truths that are first in order of importance, the most important truths. These are the primary truths of the gospel, the most essential, fundamental, basic truths on which all other Christian doctrine rests. And Paul enumerates the gospel then in four points. And we're going to use those four points as our outline. Here are four points of gospel truth that are foundational for every other truth of Christianity. They are, I'll give them to you all four right up front. They are the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and eyewitness evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And all of these are historical events that take us back to that one pivotal weekend that culminated in the bodily resurrection of Christ. And so let's consider these one at a time as we work our way through this text. The first is the crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ. The end of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That, he says, is the first fundamental truth of the gospel. Now, it would be a serious mistake to conclude from this verse that the actual starting point of the gospel is Good Friday and the crucifixion. The real starting point actually takes us all the way back to the Old Testament, which is what Paul is referring to when he says Christ died according to the Scriptures. He's pointing us back to the Old Testament, and he's concerned not merely with the historical facts of the gospel narrative, although, as we're about to see, he's definitely concerned to convince us that the story of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, that is real history. It's not, a, it's not a myth. It's not a story that was concocted. But his focus here goes beyond the bare facts of history to the actual meaning of what is wrapped up in those facts. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There's an infinite wealth of doctrinal truth loaded into just those few words. Paul sweeps up into that simple statement the doctrine of the atonement, the meaning of Christ's death, the entire doctrine of justification by faith, and the authority and accuracy of Scripture. All of those doctrines, and really much more, are subsumed and implied in that simple statement, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, especially for the seminary students in our midst, let me say this. There's a tremendous amount of discussion and controversy these days about what academic theologians refer to as narrative theology. Narrative theology, in its simplest and most benign form, 
starts out with a recognition that a significant portion of Scripture is given to us in narrative form, story form. It's a story, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and much of the Old Testament is history, and it's told to us in narrative fashion rather than purely didactic terms. It's not a lecture on doctrine that Scripture gives us. It's a story. The Bible is not just a doctrinal discourse. The entire life of Christ is given to us in four parallel narrative accounts that are stories and incidents from the life of Christ rather than Scripture giving us a list of His attributes and and doctrines about the hypostatic union and an extended explanation of how His divine and human natures might all exist in one person. The Bible does not teach doctrine in a, in a series of bullet points that are suited for PowerPoint slides. But the Bible gives us history that, for the most part, is conveyed to us in story form. And one of the important points we draw from that fact is that God himself recognizes that stories are powerful as vehicles for the truth. Nothing is wrong with that. That actually is a principle we can all affirm, but as this idea of narrative theology has gained popularity, and it's a fad and a buzzword in academic circles today, you have to be more and more cautious when you hear that expression being thrown around, because it's become a shield for people to hide behind who have been, you know, bitten by the postmodern bug, and and they think we need to reinvent Christianity to suit these postmodern times, and they say the story is all that really matters. You know, the interpretation of the story can be fresh and, and new with each individual, and they say that we should be less concerned with abstract doctrines, and we just should simply embrace the narrative you know, for its own sake. And, and it doesn't really matter if each culture or each individual interprets the story differently. The story is what's important and not some underlying doctrinal grid. And, and we're often told we can become part of the story ourselves. Just shape it to fit your own experience. Let me just say this clearly. That's the wrong way to do theology. It's a really bad and dangerous way to do theology. And in fact, to give a specific example based on this very text... I've actually corresponded with people who insist that what matters is that Christ died for our sins. They they say, I don't want to argue about whether that was a substitution for our punishment or an example for us to follow or merely a graphic picture of the wickedness of sin. And they say, it doesn't matter what you believe about the nature of the atonement. They say it also doesn't matter whether you believe the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us or infused into us or merely given to us as a pattern for us to follow and imitate. If you believe the simple story that Christ died for our sins, you can interpret that in almost any way you want, and then you're in. You're a true Christian, and shame on anyone who ever questions you on doctrinal grounds. You hear that a lot these days, And that, I'll say, is patently false, and Paul's full statement here proves it, because the point he is making is not merely that Christ died for our sins, but that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The meaning of the atonement is one of the first principles of the gospel. It's not just the historical fact of it, but what it means to say that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. And Scripture clearly says that Christ died for our sins 
by standing in our place and in our stead and taking the punishment. He took the full weight of God's wrath, which we deserved. And the principle of substitution lies at the very heart of of what Christ was doing on the cross. In fact, what does he mean according to the Scriptures? Well, you can. it's as simple as going back to Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now someone will say, okay, but that says we esteemed him or we considered him smitten by God. That doesn't mean that God was literally the one who smote Christ on the cross. Well, read on. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 10, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. So it's clear even from the Old Testament that what Christ was doing on the cross, what he bore on the cross was the penalty of sin, the full weight of God's wrath against sinners. That is how he died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And if you concoct some other explanation for how and why he died, you don't have a Christ who died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And if you don't believe that's the meaning of the cross, you haven't embraced the very first principle of the gospel. The cross is not just a moving narrative that's designed to elicit a feeling of sympathy in us about Christ and his suffering. I don't care if you watched Mel Gibson's film about the crucifixion ten times and cried your eyes out every time. You haven't embraced the meaning of Christ's death unless you understand that Christ suffered all of the horrors of the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God. And so the worst part of his suffering isn't even visible to us. It's the wrath of God poured out on him. And he died as a substitute for sinners who actually deserved not only the pains and punishments of a Roman crucifixion, but also we deserved the full weight of God's wrath against our sin. And you still haven't got it if you've never seen yourself as one of those sinners who deserves that judgment. And when Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he means all of that. In Romans 3.25, Paul himself says, Christ's blood was a propitiation. He uses that word, meaning it's an offering to satisfy the wrath and righteousness of God. All right, so let's be honest about this. That's a crude-sounding truth, isn't it? Are you uncomfortable with the idea that God demanded a blood sacrifice in order to make forgiveness possible? Do you think it makes God sound severe and maybe even ruthless to require the life of an innocent victim, and in this case, his own son, before he would forgive guilty sinners who actually deserved the the punishment that Christ took? Does your mind resonate with those who desperately want to tone down that truth because they say, that makes God sound like a cosmic child abuser. And if so, if that's how you feel, you haven't yet grasped the very heart of the gospel. Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
Leviticus 17, 11, it is the blood that makes an atonement. God doesn't forgive apart from a full and perfect sacrifice, and that involves shedding the lifeblood of a perfect, flawless, sinless substitute as a sacrifice. But the fact is, no sacrifice was ever good enough. Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so, Hebrews 10 verse 12, Christ offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. And all of Scripture teaches this truth of substitutionary sacrifice. Of course, ideas like blood sacrifice and propitiation, that challenges the sensitivities of secular postmodern culture. And so there's no shortage of people today who call themselves Christians but they want to refine and redefine the gospel so that they can eliminate the hard and ugly truths like that. But that is the very idea Paul has in mind when he says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the very first principle of gospel truth. Here's another one, number two, the burial of Christ, verse 4. And He was buried. Now, at first glance, you might be surprised... And I had to wonder about it as I thought about this passage, surprised to see Paul name the burial of Christ as one of the first and most essential principles of gospel truth. And I think although all of us who are members of Grace Church and regulars here in Grace Life, all of us would affirm the truth of Christ's burial, it's a point that most of us wouldn't think of instantly as one of the fundamental truths of Christianity. This is not something that most of us meditate very deeply on, even during Easter season, when we're supposed to be remembering the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. You read this, though, and you say, is there some secret, mysterious doctrinal significance in the burial of Christ that Paul is trying to bring out here? What's his point including this? Well, remember, these four points from the gospel narrative are shorthand, These are categories that all of them include bigger truths, and they imply many more truths than the bare facts of the events themselves would suggest. So what is the fact that Christ was buried? What does that suggest to you? The point Paul is underscoring here is the reality, the totality, and the historicity of Christ's death. He's saying Jesus did not merely appear to die. His death was not a charade designed to fool his enemies. It wasn't a myth devised to teach some abstract idea. This was real. He was truly and literally dead. And that's a fact of history. But back to the first point, where Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. The lesson again is that the authentic gospel includes the meaning of Christ's death according to the Scriptures. And that stresses the importance of sound doctrine. Here, when Paul says that he was buried, he's saying that the true gospel affirms the historical facts of Christ's death and burial. If you don't believe in the literal, historical, biblical account of what occurred to Christ when he was crucified, buried, and resurrected, then he's saying, then if you don't believe the historicity of it, you haven't believed the gospel either. If you think it's just a myth or a story that someone invented, but it didn't really happen, you haven't really believed. And this is vital for us because we live in an era where there are lots of self-styled religious experts, you know, including men who have 
literally attained the level of bishop in a supposedly Protestant body like the Anglican Church who have said that they don't believe it really matters much whether you believe the facts about Christ's death and resurrection are literally true. But Paul is saying here, it does matter. It actually does matter that you believe that he was buried and that Scripture says he was buried under the watchful eye of a Roman military guard who, under Pilate's personal orders, in the words of Matthew twenty-seven sixty-six, they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Roman soldiers, these are men from elite units who specialized in carrying out crucifixions. They, they knew very well how to tell whether a person was really dead or not. And the gospel accounts all take pains to make it clear that Jesus was well and truly dead and that he was buried and that this is a real event in time and history. This is not merely a legend that can be bent and shaped in order to accommodate individual opinions or contextualized to suit the beliefs of secularized cultures like Corinth and like our culture today, where people think they're just too sophisticated to really believe in the idea of bodily resurrection and take it literally, but they still want to have a gospel that's suited to their own personal style of skepticism. And Paul says, no, the true gospel includes these facts, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture that his death was real and literal, and the proof is that he was buried, buried as the Scriptures describe, spending three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And, And I get that if you do the math on Friday to Resurrection Sunday, you won't come up with three days and three nights. But in the way Hebrews measured days, any part or any, any part of a day or night, covers it. And Christ was arrested on a Thursday night, crucified on Friday, buried and rose again on Sunday, and in the way they gauged days and nights, it was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, according to Matthew twelve forty. So if you take the idiom in its original sense, three days and three nights, this is a historical fact as well, that Christ's burial fulfilled what Jesus said was the sign of the prophet Jonah, in which he foretold in Matthew 12:39, in Matthew 16:64, or Matthew 16 verse 4, and also Luke 11:29 and 30, he foretold that he would be buried and rise again after the third day. And his burial over that long dark weekend from when they took him down from the cross until he rose from the dead at the dawn of the first day of the week, that is one of the primary points of gospel truth because it proves so much. It establishes Jesus as a truthful prophet because he foretold this. It proves that he was well and truly dead, and it underscores the literal historicity of the biblical account. And so those are the first two essential points of the gospel narrative. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried. So the crucifixion of Christ and then the burial of Christ. Here's point number three, and this is the pivotal one, the resurrection of Christ. And this, of course, is the greatest event in the gospel narrative. This is the pivotal point of all human history, the resurrection of Christ. This is the single greatest miracle anyone ever witnessed, and it is the most important milestone in the redemptive plan of God. And in fact, this is the supreme sign and wonder in the history of the universe. This overshadows as a miracle of great scope. This overshadows even the original creation 
in its far-reaching significance. Because the creation of the universe, that's going to dissolve and melt. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that He will be with us eternally. It's the exclamation point that punctuates the gospel narrative, the resurrection. Christ arose, and although He Himself had foretold on more than one occasion that He would rise from the dead, His disciples were completely unprepared for this. It it caught them totally by surprise. I mean, they'd seen Him die, and they knew the violence with which He died, and some of them doubted the resurrection until they saw Him with their own eyes. But the evidence was undeniable, and every one of them, except disciple John, every one of them ultimately died rather than deny the truth of Christ's resurrection. And even John, before he died of old age, while he was still affirming the literal resurrection of Christ from the dead, John suffered the loss of everything he held dear rather than renounce the truth of what he had seen with his own eyes and his hands had handled. And that's how he describes it in the opening of his first epistle. Saw it with my own eyes. My hands handled it. Now, we don't have a lot of time to review the, the biblical accounts of the resurrection, but I want you to take note of that phrase at the end of verse 4. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There it is again. Now, it's, it's easy to think of Old Testament passages that speak about the death of Christ. I read already from Isaiah 53 where the crucifixion is the main theme, and there's also Psalm 22, which is filled with specific historical references, prophecies about the murder of Jesus, lots of specific details that were prophesied centuries before Christ actually died, prophecies about his death. But what does Paul mean here when he says Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures? Are there Old Testament texts that predicted the resurrection? And the answer is, yeah, there are a few, not many, but they're there, and they're subtle, and they're easier to understand from this side of the resurrection than they were before that first Easter Sunday. But the Old Testament did contain a few hints about the resurrection. Acts 2.27 tells us that Psalm 16, verse 10 was actually speaking of the resurrection, where the psalmist writes, you will not forsake my soul to Sheol, you will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. And Isaiah 53, verse 10 even has an oblique reference to the resurrection in it, I think. It's after that great prophecy unfolds the meaning of Christ's atoning death. It says, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. After describing how he would be put to death, it says he'll prolong his days. I think there's a hint of uh, resurrection in that. But I think in this case, what Paul is referring to when he says, according to the Scriptures, I think this is most likely a reference to the gospel accounts themselves, especially the gospels of Mark and Matthew, which were already in circulation and and obviously well-known to Paul, when he wrote this epistle, because his account of the Lord's words during the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25, that is a verbatim parallel to the accounts of Matthew and Mark. So it seems he had access to those Gospels. And also, Luke was Paul's longtime companion, so the apostle surely had a close familiarity with various accounts of what Jesus said and prophecies he made during his lifetime, and those are recorded in Luke's gospel. 
And even though Paul is emphatic in saying that he received knowledge of those events, first of all, by divine revelation, it is clear that by this point in his ministry, he had access to parts of the New Testament that were already in circulation. Because, again, when he describes how the church should be observing the Lord's Supper, he repeats those words from Jesus exactly as they are found in the gospel accounts. And so that the Corinthians could compare the records of Matthew and Mark with the account they received from Paul and verify that what he was telling them was true. So I think it's pretty clear that the earliest gospels were already available to the Corinthians and known to them, and that's why Paul says Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, which tells me they probably already recognized that the Gospels were inspired Scripture. I think he was referring, when he says, according to the Scriptures, he's referring to Jesus' own words as recorded in the Gospel accounts, because Jesus did repeatedly tell the disciples that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Matthew 17, 22 and 23, for example, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew 16, 21 says that at the, at the very turning point of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So that phrase, on the third day, comes from Jesus himself, and in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, he tells his whole entourage of followers, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. So he says this repeatedly. He describes in detail that he's going to be crucified, and I think Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 15, first of all, is that Jesus' resurrection was indeed prophesied by inspired Scripture. But please get this, the interpretive key to those words in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The interpretive key is this, that phrase, according to the Scriptures, is a verbatim restatement of those words At the end of verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In other words, Paul's main point is not merely that this was prophesied and happened according to how it was prophesied, but that the true meaning of it is defined and determined by Scripture, not by our subjective interpretation of it. And so we ask, what is the actual meaning of Christ's resurrection according to the Scriptures? And Paul himself answers that in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the opening verses of his epistle to the Romans, where he says Christ was declared to be or marked out to be identified as the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's how Paul saw it. In other words, the resurrection is what vindicated Christ's claims about who he was. And Christ, who had died as a common thief between two actual thieves, alongside sinners and on their behalf, is vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. 1 Peter 1, verse 21, God raised him from the dead and thereby gave him glory. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. 
Romans 6, 9, Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. So here's the bottom line meaning of Christ's resurrection. When God raised him up, that vindicated him, that demonstrated his victory over death, and it gives you and me an unshakable assurance of our own justification which that barely scratches the surface of what Paul means when he says he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. But it gives you the flavor of that truth. This is why the resurrection was so important. This is the proof of everything Jesus ever taught or promised. It's the guarantee that those promises are fulfilled. And therefore, it's a ground for our assurance. So you have the crucifixion of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Now, quickly, here's the fourth essential truth of the gospel narrative. Number four, the eyewitness testimony about the risen Christ. Now, there's an important parallelism here. The first and the third point stress the true meaning of the gospel narrative with that phrase, according to the scriptures. The second and fourth points stress the literal historicity of the gospel narrative alongside its true meaning. And Paul is saying, not only do you have to have the true meaning of the gospel, you have to believe that it's a historical fact. Christ did not merely rise from the dead in some invisible, intangible, spiritual, non-corporeal, mystical, or mythical sense. He arose bodily from the dead, literally, so that his glorified body could be and was seen and touched and handled, and the proof is in verses 5 through 8, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and so on. And Paul literally cites these hundreds of eyewitnesses who could and would, even at the cost of their own lives, testify to the literal truth of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that, he says, is also one of the first principles of gospel truth, that Christ's resurrection is not merely a symbolic or allegorical idea but that as Christians, we absolutely believe in the absolute, actual, historical, literal, bodily resurrection of Christ. And Paul spends the remainder of this chapter outlining all the reasons why that truth is real and literal, and it's absolutely crucial to the authentic gospel message. What he's teaching is that if you don't believe the truth of the resurrection in literal and in its historic sense, if that's not the basis for your hope in Christ, your expectation of eternal life, your anticipation of your own literal bodily resurrection, if that's not the basis for why you trust those things, then you haven't truly believed the gospel yet. If you think that maybe the resurrection of Christ was just a myth or a story that people told because it had, seemed to have such great meaning, you haven't believed the gospel. And I want to challenge each of us to examine our hearts and honestly face the question, because this is what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do, face the question of whether we have genuinely embraced the gospel as Paul presents it in this passage. It starts with the death of Christ as an atonement for sins, a historical event that was as real as any event in history punctuated by his burial under the watchful eyes of Roman soldiers who, as I said, they knew death when they saw it. It includes the truth of substitutionary atonement, which satisfied the wrath and righteousness of God, paid the price of our sin. And that, in turn, implies 
that we need to recognize our guilt and our utter unworthiness. And then it culminates in the amazing resurrection of Christ from the dead as the first fruits, Paul says, of all who believe and who are justified and who will one day rise bodily as well to spend eternity in the presence of God. And if you truly believe that, you're saved. And the fruit of salvation should be evident in your life. If you've never embraced the gospel, I urge you to turn to Christ today and be saved. Receive Him by faith and benefit from the promises He made that were sealed with the truth of His resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the grace that sent Christ to die in order to save us. Thank you especially for the truth that we celebrate today, that Christ was raised from the grave on the third day according to the Scriptures. Lord, we rejoice in that truth. We commemorate it every single Sunday. May that be foremost in our thoughts and minds and increase our faith. And may we live in the light of your resurrection power. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.